I always remember like towards the beginning of my career, people would be like, oh, it's like these like sexy paintings of like two women having sex. And I'm like, I don't really see how there's any, there's not even two figures. There's like 15 hands and like four torsos and (laughs) you can't escape it. Welcome to Dreaming of Home. I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley, host of this podcast series launched in conjunction with a group show I curated at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art in New York City that springboards from Catherine Opie's artwork Self-Portrait Cutting. The photo, taken in 1993, depicts Kathy Opie from behind. A childlike scene depicting two lesbians holding hands next to a house under the clouds has been cut into her back. The exhibition features 20 of today's most groundbreaking artists reflecting on the rapid and tumultuous shifts experienced by LGBTQIA communities in the 30 years since Kathy's photograph. In the podcast, I am joined in the search for home by artists from the exhibition and Leslie Lohman Museum art workers as we explore queer people's hope for a happy, healthy future and the restrictions imposed by wider society on our dreams, our relationships, our families and our bodies. For the final episode of this series of the Dreaming of Home podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by two of the extraordinary artists featured in the group exhibition, American painters Jenna Gribben and Christina Qualls, both of whom have been exhibited by galleries and museums around the world and have work held by major public collections. Jenna paints tender, uncanny scenes of everyday life, often depicting moments that push the limits of public and private, agency and consent, and exhibition and exploitation. She often paints her wife, Mackenzie Scott. She's most recently featured in exhibitions at Flag Art Foundation and the landmark exhibition series Living Histories at the Frick Collection in New York City. She's had solo shows at Massimo de Carlo Gallery in London, which I was lucky enough to see, and in Hong Kong. And she's just opened a solo show called The Honeymoon Show at Levy Gorvi Diane in New York, which runs till January. Christina's figurative practice seeks to dismantle assumptions and ingrained beliefs surrounding identity and the human form. This year, she presented a major solo show at Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin. And last year, she participated in the 59th Venice Biennale exhibition, Milk of Dreams, curated by Cecilia Alemani. She's had solo shows at Hauser and Worth's New York and Menorca Galleries, and her solo show, Tripping Over My Joy, opened Pilar Correa's new London gallery space during Freeze Week and is on till 16th of December. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. Hi, nice to be here. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited to speak to both of you today. You are two of my favourite painters, and as I know you both already know, I love your work deeply. We've spoken about it lots before, but I just get a lot of identification from the work. Like it really, really speaks to me. I think you're both very open about the queerness in your work. Sometimes that can be fairly explicit, but often it's quite subtle. And I think that that's something that's really interesting about both of your works. You approach the queerness quite differently. So I wanted to start by asking about that. And I wanted to understand better if the queerness in your work is something that you think about when you're making the work. Jenna, perhaps you could kick us off. I would say that I think about the queerness in my work when I think about my work. When I'm actually making the work, I'm just really thinking about painting. I think some paintings are 
more, let's say, queer focused than than others. But obviously, it's all coming from my life and my perspective. So it's sort of, for that reason, they're sort of inherently queer. But yes, for me, it feels super important because there aren't a lot of images like this that exist. A lot of, there's not a lot of representation of two women in a romantic relationship in the history of painting. And even with some of them being as explicit as they are, a lot of times they, they don't even necessarily get read that way by people. I think people try to see everything but that in the paintings to the point where a lot of people think that I make self-portraits. Mackenzie gets approached frequently and asked if she's the artist. And uh, yeah, you just, at some point, I kind of realized you have to be extremely overt um, in order for people to recognize that a romantic relationship between two women is being depicted. So like the largest painting in my show in New York right now, one is, is I guess, the most explicitly lesbian painting. It's like the bottom half of my body. And then you see the top half of her body and our, our, our limbs are entwined, which is a kind of painting that, that I've made a lot. But it's the largest painting. So it sort of makes the biggest statement. And that painting is called Huge Gaze, in parentheses, homophone. So it's kind of, you're kind of, her gaze is super intense. Like it's giant. She's giant. And she's, you're met with this like really, really intense gaze, but it's also, yeah, huge, us being huge gaze basically is what I'm saying. It's inescapable. And I've made it that way intentionally, obviously. So the huge gaze, it's you and your wife, Mackenzie Scott. It's super interesting to hear that people try and avoid reading the queerness into the work. One of those similarly explicit works is hanging in the Leslie Lohman show as well at the moment, but on a much smaller scale, that's Couch View. You're painting from 2022. But yeah, like you said, it's it's just you painting your life and your lives together. And actually a woman painting a woman feels very unusual and quite radical because it's not what we see so much of the time. It's interesting that you brought up that painting in relation to the other painting, because I think that that hits on something really important, the difference between those two paintings, because both of them are this perspective where you see through my body to her body. But one of them is like the positions of our body is inherently more sexual, whereas the one that you're talking about where she's on the couch, you actually see her vulva, but it's a much less sexual painting. It's just like two people being on the couch. And I think that's also an interesting, it's a difficult thing to to paint about. About It's difficult, obviously, to paint a woman and, and show her vulva and not have it be read as automatically sexual, but it's something that, that I that I try to do in the work. So it's, yeah, showing a queer relationship um, and showing bodily proximity and comfort and being naked together without it necessarily being sexual is, it's like trying to show the complexity of, of a queer relationship and all, all the sides of it. And all those varying degrees of intimacy what that can look mm-hmm. like. It's not just all about the sex. Mm-hmm. And Christina. Yeah, I was just going to respond because I, I find that that's something that I come across a lot with my work and how it's interpreted and this sort of over-sexualizing of a nude body. And I, I oftentimes 
am looking at the compositions that I'll make and I'll think, well, it's not actually like, there's not like overt like penetration happening or like, you know, there's not like some explicit sex position. Oftentimes there's physical contact and there's usually boobs out. But like, but I find that it's really interesting the tendency to go kind of into a like explicitly like lesbian sex narrative (laughs) with my paintings when I think that one of the things that's so beautiful about intimacy and specifically within queer communities is this relationship to to bodies and to nudity and to being sort of like in your flesh with other people and with a community of people and it's not always because of sexual intimacy it could be a friendship or it could be a closeness and um and something that i've just found as an interesting almost social experiment moving through the world and seeing how my work is interpreted by other people and how how much people want to pin down certain narratives that are either explicitly gay sex or explicitly not that, I think is really interesting. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I would say that only maybe like one out of every 15 or 20 of my paintings is actually sexual. But I think when people think of my work, they're like, oh, it's, you know, these paintings are all about sex. And to me, they're, yeah, they're not at all. But I'm painting my partner and I'm painting about what it is to try to see someone from that like very intimate um, proximity. And in our life, we, we have bodies and our bodies are often unclothed, you know, in our domestic life together. So I, I depict that, but it's, it's so rarely actually a sexual painting. There have been a few, but, but really not that many. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Thinking about the depths of queerness and how people are quite quick to think of it being about sex. I often think about that Bell Hooks quote where she says, queer isn't about who you're having sex with. It's about the self being at odds with everything around it and kind of inventing and creating spaces to thrive and live. And and I feel like that comes through in both of your work. It, it's that multifaceted experience. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that, I mean, thinking about, you know, your first question at the top of this podcast, but this idea about queerness, I remember being so relieved when I came to the term queerness, because I felt sort of so trapped within the label of gay or lesbian. And it was something I felt was really defined by the fact that I was in a partnership with a woman and that I identify as a woman. But I found that the identity itself felt very static. And one of the things I love about queerness is that it feels like it's such an active identity. And it's it's one that can allow for an identity position that can include a community. So it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it's so specific that you don't have the community aspect that I think we go towards identity positions to have that sense of community and camaraderie, but it still has an open-endedness and a sort of verb-like quality to it, where it seems like it's something that you're constantly renegotiating the terms of what queerness is. And I mean, I know, I, I think of some couples that I know where I'm like, you're in a same-sex relationship, but I don't necessarily know if you would identify as being queer. And there's other people where I'm like, well, you're in a, what would technically be considered a heterosexual relationship, but you definitely are queer people. And so I I love that it also, it does sort of, in some ways it divorces the sex from the identity, but in other ways it, it very much integrates it within it as well. It reintegrates it 
and reintegrates it in a way where it's more about how you identify sort of the terms and limits of a sexual or intimate relationship rather than the body parts or identities that are in that that are in that relationship. Yeah, and how you approach the world more broadly. I feel like that fluidity comes across in your figures as well. They're often pretty ambiguous in terms of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, like the bodies, the figures, they're open to interpretation is, is my read on them. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I so I think that that is certainly how, I mean, I think Jenna really had a great point that when you're making a painting, you're oftentimes thinking about the painting. And so it's always funny to to have conversations about like, oh, what are you thinking about with it? And you're really, you are considering the painting itself. But then with making meaning and context about the work, once you've made the piece or as you're making the piece and you're taking a step away from it, I think that's when those questions of sort of your, your understanding of something like queerness and how that can permeate the work. And for me, that really is about that idea of having to continuously renegotiate your position or your context based on this almost incontainable sense of self that is oftentimes sort of beyond the limits of representation. And so how to have a painting, which is all about static representational image and how to work with the figure within that, but still find ways of activating this sense of ongoing, ongoing change and ongoing rediscovery of the sort of terms and limits of that identity. And what about um, the idea of home or the domestic, the show is called Dreaming of Home. And Jenna, when we were talking about which paintings of yours to include, we quite deliberately went for these three different images that show different sides of your life, your your home, um, there's, as well as the couch for you painting we discussed. There's another one called Me Looking at Her, Looking at Me, where you and Mackenzie are reading together on the sofa. And then there's another one called To Share a Common Memory, which is your son Silas swimming. And I love those three together. It really shows different sides of your home life. Yeah, I think part of what I strive to do is to reflect a multi-dimensional human experience. And so for me, that includes all of the things that includes being an artist, being a mother, being a partner. I think it's really important to see all those things in a space together. And I don't know, I just think so many, there's still this kind of puritanical discomfort with thinking of women as sexual beings and as mothers in the same breath. But of course we are, we're all those things. Yeah, I don't want to be one artist or the other artist because I am I am all of those artists. I'm a mother artist. I'm an artist who's a sexual being. I'm an artist who has lazy moments on the couch with her wife, you know, and it's the silly thing that people can sometimes not reconcile like all of those aspects of self and one and one woman particularly for some reason we have an easier time with the idea that men are all these things at once but yeah back to the idea of the the queerness the way the queerness manifests in the work i like christina what you're how you're describing queerness and i i relate to that a lot too and and also to the bell hooks quote and it's it's sometimes hard to verbalize exactly what what the queerness in is in the work but i definitely even in the paintings of my child i think that they're very queer paintings it's funny actually when i 
a few years ago, I would have said that it felt very queer to be a figurative painter because being a figurative painter felt like kind of on the outside of of um, what what was sort of in the center of the art world, I guess. And so it felt kind of queer and also very campy to be a figurative painter. So to me, I think, like, I do think that there's a lot of camp in my work. I think that having these, like, quotations of um, certain periods of the history of painting, like, like these kind of, like, 18th century, highly romanticized, you know, painting quotations, to me is, like, a very queer thing to do because of the yeah the the embrace of of camp there's there's no community that embraces camp the way the queer community does and i feel like that's like a fun aspect of my work that it, it's very subtle or it can be very subtle and maybe it's even slightly coded for for the queers you know like i feel like it's certain things in the work are so subtly queer that that only other queers kind of like pick up on them or or view them through that lens. That's sort of how I think about it sometimes. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that I guess it could be considered a good problem to have, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently about the sort of world that I was making my paintings in uh, before 2016 <laughs> versus after. And that the idea of a figure of painting, it almost seems absurd now to say that, but it's true. I mean, when I was in grad school, from 2014 to 2016, it was kind of like taboo that I was making figurative paintings. And mm-hmm. um, and I've been coming up against this idea of things that I've included in my work over you know the last decade that have been things that I find to resonate with me on a level of camp or a level of being sort of so over the top, kind of like that's a crazy thing to include in a painting or that's super ugly or super cliche. And to have that sort of become now sort of what people want to see in a painting. I've been like, oh, no, now I have to like figure out something else that's completely <laughs> ugly and obscene to include in a painting. Because now people Damn. like seeing paintings like this. Um, and it's a hard thing. I, I'm, at, I'm actually like not sure how to wrestle with that. I mean, I think it's one thing to kind of have the resilience of making work that nobody wants to look at. But it's a different sort of problem to make work that suddenly enters the mainstream. But I think that's something that queer people come across often, you know, culture that is seen as counter or refuge being co-opted into the mainstream and how to then find some some other dark corner that's interesting while still recognizing, I guess, the privilege of what it is to have certain things not have to be so underground or so repulsive. It, it's a It's a complicated position. It really is. Uh, but I, I struggle with the same thing. It's like, oh, this is this reads completely differently than it would have five years ago. And now, it's, of course, that's not at all the situation. And and yeah, I don't, I don't exactly want to complain about the work being popular, but it does create this kind of a little bit of a conundrum. But I think also what you said is true that historically this this has happened to things that have been popularized by queer people over and over again and i think i think the idea is if you're still interested in doing the thing don't stop doing it just because it's become popular obviously but i mean yeah because i think that there's like i mean I, I still find that there's moments of being able to play with the conventions i mean i guess now i'm thinking not only just of painting but of things like 
you know, being married to a woman, you know, and having a child and, and having these things that well, I guess I think we maybe all have this in common and being, are you married, Jenna? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like being married, having children. It's like these sort of, uh, more heterosexual <laughs> conventions, um, and things that were in the past, not even legally available to us. But I think that there's still queerness within that, of course. I mean, I think that it's, it's only, if you haven't been through it, would you say that there's no queerness in, in that relationship? Because I think that there's plenty of things that we, we do to sort of invent and reassess the sort of institutions of domestic or family or marriage life. And so I, I, I guess I could maybe <laughs> just as my pep talk to myself, hope that that would be the same case with, with painting and, and with moving through these visual tropes that go in and out of fashion, uh, but still finding ways to, to tweak and queer the narrative even when they become more mainstream also to your point about the kind of like heteronormativity of marriage we also always have to find ways to to queer our families Mm -hmm. (laughs) queer our relationships even though they are inherently queer like you said it's like again going back to the idea of queerness being it's a way of it's a way of being and there's always ways to make it more queer (laughs) Yeah, I love that parallel with the life because, yeah, we are, we're all, all three of us are living that. And it's true. I think what you said, people can often kind of cry assimilation when they see kind of marriage and children, but actually living it and facing those daily challenges and realizing that it still feels very unexpected for a lot of people. It means there is that additional layer of labor involved. And I think with both of your work as well, like you are continually surprising both of you, you know, there's often these unexpected elements that come in. Like Christina, I I love as well, you both talking about the campness there. One of the things I was going to ask you about, Christina, is in the painting we have in the show, it's called Tilt Shift. It's a painting from 2020, a huge painting. And in there, there's like a gingham tablecloth or bedspread. There's a vase of cut flowers that, you know, I think nods to the domestic, also to camp. And and that's one of the reasons we chose that painting to go in the show. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm really happy that uh, one of the gingham pieces (laughs) was selected for the show. There's a few patterns of mine that I've repeated again and again, even though I try to always come up with some sort of new <laughs> challenge or headache in each one of my new paintings. But I always return to that gingham pattern because I love that it's it's such a it's such a simple pattern to create because it's really just a simple brushwork grid. But for me, I mean it really brings up memories of the cheap vinyl plastic tablecloth that my mom always would keep underneath our nice tablecloths <laughs> to protect the also kind of cheap table underneath. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it, it has these connections to sort of like a, like a picnic cloth or a tablecloth. And, and oftentimes with the patterns in my work, I try to reference these multiply located situations that could be, that could exist as something that is either kind of like in this more sort of high end fabric or uh, sort of high art reference. And then other things that can reference a more sort of common, like a 99 cent store plastic tablecloth experience. And I think that that's also sort of, yeah, in many ways, I mean, I'm sure I'm probably <laughs> going to get this wrong to, to all the theorists that study camp, but 
I always think about camp as being something that can kind of exist in that high-low intersection and have that that sort of almost like play acting at something that's so sort of fancy that it becomes cheap and <laughs> common all over again. So definitely within within my work, I try to play with that, with the environments and with the patterns and with even elements like a, like a vase of flowers, um, you know, something that could have all this sort of philosophical meaning behind it and gendered meaning and domestic meaning, but also can feel like this sort of stand in for what a painting's supposed to have, like a painting's supposed to have a still life of flowers in it. So it does. Yeah. I feel like that's making me think of some of the ways that you play with the kind of composition and visual impact of the work as well, Jenna, you know, you often leave like the clamp light visible in the work or like there's bits where you're playing with it or you're revealing the process in the way that you're painting as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to show the the seams of production to sort of offer constant reminders that the narrative that you're being fed is a creation of mine, you know, that it might seem like you're looking at something that's very authentically part of my life. Sometimes you are, and sometimes it's completely made up, or sometimes it's made up, but it's still based on something real and just kind of exploring where those lines get blurred. Clamp lights, green screens. In in the show now, it's like spotlights and velvet curtains. It's made very clear that you're watching this kind of theatrical rendition of something. It's either theatrical or it's like late night, game show or so it's kind of unclear what the <laughs> what the production is but like it's clearly um it, it, those those paintings are juxtaposed with um scenes from our honeymoon in thailand which also sometimes look fake and are also campy like i think the campiest one is Mackenzie standing on a beach like with a sunset behind her and it's like so hyper romantic and and also like so references landscape portraiture from the history of art in both of our work, I mean, I think there's these continual references to the construction and the artifice of a narrative and of an image. And I think that that's something that is one of the things that continues to queer even a very domestic situation like marriage or, or being a mother um, is that as queer people, we're constantly having to, I guess, we're, we're constantly reminded that we're in sort of this artifice or in this in this role that was not actually necessarily carved out for us to live within and so i think it's that that sort of assertion of not taking a role for granted but actually to actively construct it and to make it our own to me is is an aspect of your work Jenna, that is one of those maybe more subtle nods to a queer reading of it is seeing these things that sort of set up the scene and so I'm not able to fully fall into it even as the you know the legs of presumably of yours or of the authors of the works that allow me to have the vantage point of somebody that's integrated into the scene it's still these moments of artifice that remind me that it is to not fully fall into that illusion and I think as queer people it's also you don't take even the safety of your situation for granted so it's constantly having to be aware and I think that that's something that can be sometimes very painful and very difficult, but I think it's also something that allows for us to, I mean, I remember reading before becoming a mother, like all these things about like making sure you communicate, like 
chores in the house with your partner and all these things where I was like, this sounds like this is for straight people because I feel like there's no given about like who, which one of us is going to be working, which one of us is going to be carrying a child, which one of us is going to be doing certain aspects of domestic responsibility. And I think that it's always having to come across these things that people are often born into these roles where they just have a lot assumed about what they're going to do. But to have the the pain of not being included in that also has a privilege of being able to invent a system that that works well for you and be aware that it's all sort of an invented set of roles. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of narrative and the way narrative is constructed, I think it's a very surreal experience to see your, you know, your storyline unfold and have it be outside of what you were always told it was supposed to be, you know? So it's this very surreal feeling of like, wait, how did I get here? You know, and it takes a lot of work to even understand your own story that you tell yourself about yourself. So I think that maybe that's a through line in our work too. It's this, by revealing the way narrative is constructed, we can kind of like think about how our own story was constructed um, by ourselves. Because, you know, I think that's something very queer also is this idea that you make your own reality, you make your own family, you make your own choices about what's right and wrong and what's moral or immoral or, you know, all of these things you have to rethink because you're living outside of these like prefabricated storyline that you could have or that other people follow. I used to be with a man, my child, his father is a man. And it was a very difficult thing to leave that relationship. But I knew that I had to do it. I wanted to instill in my child this value of being able to make of your life what what you want of it. And if you're unhappy, you can, you can change your life. And actually you can make your life look any way you want to make it look. I mean, in some ways, obviously we're all in these systems of various levels of oppression and, and all these things, but you, you have a lot of agency to write your own story, to create your own narrative. And if you don't like the story that you're in, <laughs> you can change it. And that's a particularly queer superpower, I think, that we have. And we've all had to have those moments where we we chose to author our own stories in a way that is not prescribed. And I think that's such a like incredible thing to be able to model for a child. It is. And there's so much freedom, I think, that comes with with that as well. It's like, Christina, what you were saying, not having to carry that baggage of those heteronormative traditions of, oh, but you're the person that's meant to do the laundry. You're the one that has to put out the bins. You're the one that has to earn the money. Like We just get to make it up as we go along. And I think one of the things in both of your work that I love as well is this deep romance and the intense emotional feeling, whether it's for your lover, your partner, or the people in your life, your family. You know, Jenna, you you paint Mackenzie over and over again. And Christina, I, I read a quote actually when you did your South London Gallery show a while ago, and you said, 
that you were thinking about the experience of living in a body rather than looking at a body you know there's a real kind of intensity there I think and that's something that feels quite inherently queer or even just quite lesbian lesbians are quite intense we are all quite intense and I feel like that's something I really get from both of your work I was thinking about this a lot when you were describing the the three works of Jonas in the show and, and thinking too about the titles and a lot of it is about this reflection of an experience or of yourself through another person. I find that that is oftentimes when there aren't the sort of validating factors of like, you know, a sort of model set of identities that you can feel at home within. You maybe feel more alienated from more of like a status quo sense of self that we do tend to find solace in these intimate relationships because it's a way of feeling that connection or that community or that camaraderie through another person um, and not just trying to figure yourself out within yourself. Because I, I mean, a lot of my work is about sort of the, the fragmentation, the disorientation um, of knowing yourself and in many ways how you can be really at odds of finding unity or wholeness within a sense of self because you are the sort of fragmentation of limbs and these many different experiences that you have throughout the day that are all these different contexts and ways that you relate to other people and code switch throughout the day. And it's actually other people that seem really solid and stable. And so I think finding an intimate relationship where you can find the the sort of common ground of fragmentation of another person, but also wholeness of yourself through that person. Um, and I think that's something that is so beautiful thinking about the pain and of the, of the shared memory of, of your son or, or the idea of you know, seeing yourself like looking through, like looking at your partner, looking at you, looking at her. And that that sort of back and forth reflection, I think, is what starts to add a sense of calm to an otherwise really kind of lonely or painful experience of really trying to accept the true ambiguity of yourself. Yeah, because you, you've used titles in your work before, like, sorry, I missed you or laid down beside you. And it, I think there's definitely something similar there with this perspective of look yeah looking through somebody else's eyes or that proximity to another body that you have a deep and meaningful connection with yeah definitely and I mean it's an interesting sort of conundrum too as a painter because you're also then making work for strangers and uh, strangers not only that you've never met now but also theoretically works that need to uh, exist independent of you in you know, hopefully centuries <laughs> beyond your existence and so very different temporal context. So I think it's that expression of like a very intimate and familiar relationship, but then also an awareness that that is going to then be seen and interpreted and, and understood through people that you actually don't have an intimate relationship with. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting question to come across as an artist. Yeah, that's something I wonder about all the time. Jenna, I wonder what you think about that. You're sharing so much from your personal life, so much from your private world, and it's being exhibited in museums, galleries all around the world. People buy and own the work, and they're not all lesbians, they're not all queer people. I feel like there's a real kind of power to that. It's like you're getting this queer representation out there. You know, you're both have very strong positions in the art market in the contemporary art world and it's this work that 
you know, when I look at it, I really relate to it. Both of your work, I see myself, I see my people. And I just love that that work is being celebrated in the mainstream art world in such a major way. Feels really powerful. It's complicated. Um, some, some days I struggle with the intimacy of the paintings and the fact that they, I don't have a lot of control necessarily over where they, where they end up. Um, sometimes there's some control, but not, not that much, but part of me really enjoys, I, I sort of have this, there's the part of me that wants to be like super controlling and wishes that I could like decide who, you know, where every painting lived and, um, how everyone interprets every painting and tell them exactly what I'm thinking about every painting and have my voice out there and my narrative. And then there's the other side of me that loves the like chaotic aspect of putting art out in the world and and seeing how it can have these other lives that aren't in my control. Depending on on the moment, I might feel one way or, or the other. But it's it's definitely surreal to have naked paintings of my wife hanging in <laughs> other people's homes. It's it can be funny, but but it's also I do also feel like these paintings, all paintings, all all works are they're kind of Trojan horses. You know, so you're sending them out into the world and people think they're they're buying one thing, but then they're spending time with something. You know, the ideas that are embedded in the work will kind of infiltrate, which I think is so cool. Or you put it in a in a museum or something and it's uh, the painting is able to do all this work on your behalf of putting ideas that you believe in. Ideas are disseminated in this way that people people are kind of unsuspecting when they just look at a beautiful painting that they they bought because they like the colors or something. Yeah, I mean, I think both of our works, we use aspects that will sort of hook a viewer immediately, um, things that viewers like to see are drawn to. I mean, just the figure, I think we are constantly trying to find figuration or faces and even just everyday objects, um, plants or outlets in the wall. And then when you add on top of that things like, you know, saturated color scenes that, that remind people of a, of a domestic space or scenes that they're familiar with, I always see it as like a way of sort of hooking a viewer to spend time, invest the time that hopefully will lead to questions or lead to sort of an undermining of an initial read or an initial draw to the work. Um, and it's always, I think it's always the role of an artist to be really aware of what is said about their work and what how it's interpreted and to really kind of take notice if it starts to go too far in a direction of just that first read and not the second, third, or fourth iteration that you want it to. Because I find that that's always a, I always find for myself that like, I don't want to put out work there that perpetuates a way of encouraging, a way of like lazy looking or a way of just seeing or consuming sort of certain body types that are often put in that position of having to just be sort of consumed or looked at. Um, but to really play with that, that initial drive to do that and then, and then find ways of tweaking that. But I think it's something you have to always be mindful of bringing in an audience that maybe wouldn't be having this conversation, but then also hopefully kind of transforming or evolving what that conversation is. I feel like both of you, the work is, just really, really good. You're both making really, really good paintings. And so that's what's getting people engaged and having them look at your work. But then, yeah, like you said, 
where it's hopefully increasing empathy and understanding and encouraging people to ask the right questions and take a moment of pause and consideration. I was wondering, Christina, if you've ever been able to shift a narrative that you felt was continually going in the wrong direction or or if there's been some work that has been habitually misread or something, have you had success in redirecting those interpretations? I would love to, <laughs> I would love to know. I, mean, I don't know. I, I think that it is always, I, I think there's some artists that just feel like they have no, there's no need to talk about their work or you know, do podcasts like this um, or speak to you know, education departments and museums and stuff. And I think that that is a valid position. I, at the end of the day, the work does need to stand on its own and, and it's completely up to the artist if they want to supplement the work standing on its own with any sort of narrative input. Um, but I always find it to be just an amazing opportunity to be given the opportunity to contextualize it in the way that, you know, I, I would hope for it to be contextualized. But, um, so in, in that regard, I, I have noticed sort of like a shift away from, like, I always remember like towards the beginning of my career, people would be like, oh, it's like these like sexy paintings of like two women having sex. And I'm like, I don't really see how there's any, like, there's not even two figures. There's like 15 hands and like four torsos. And you're really allowing just this idea of kind of long hair and like fleshy boobs to be woman. That's also like such a narrow understanding of gender and body types too. And and so, I mean, for me, the frustration is more that a read like that suggests that somebody hasn't spent very long looking at the work rather than the interpretation being wrong. Because I don't think there's like a wrong interpretation. I think it's just as an artist, it's always about sustaining that period of time that somebody looks at a work. Because hopefully you've included enough in the painting that it is complicated and engaging on a lot of different levels. And it's less, I mean, I wouldn't mind if somebody walked away being like, oh yeah, I'm still getting that it's about like lesbian sex, but I spent 20 minutes looking at it. And I really understand that the reason why it's about lesbian sex is because of the way the composition butts up against the edge of the frame and the way that you've included this like sense of heat in the bottom right corner, but coolness in the upper left. Yeah, so it's not so much about changing the narrative, but more sustaining the time it takes to get to that narrative. And so that's something, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've found that that it's always context that kind of helps that sustained temporal experience with the works, whether it's including interviews and podcasts or also architecturally considering the space, considering even the context of a group show. Like I think a show like this is a really wonderful way to cement a, a queer reading of the work just by the context of the other artists in the exhibition. At the end of the day, it's also the work kind of needs to be able to work in isolation with zero context and still hopefully break through. Before I wrap up, there's one question I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, it's my cheesy moment. What is your dream of home? Jenna, can you share with us? I feel like I'm living in my dream of home at the moment, but I just recently bought a house actually, which I feel like sheepish even saying that. It's not something that I ever thought in my wildest dreams that I would be able to do that, especially like from painting. Um, so it feels like a dream, honestly. And we're just in this sort of period of domestic bliss, just like doing little things around the house, gardening, really excited to 
have our first Christmas here. And yeah, it just, it feels really special to be in our, our first year in our new home together, living currently in my dream of home. But I mean, home to me is, it's not just my immediate family. It's not nuclear family. It's having close friendships, having an open door for a friend. I love that for you. Well, long may your honeymoon period continue. Yes. It, I mean, it's, it's been our first year in our new home and our first year being married. We got married about a year ago. Congratulations on both. And we got a puppy. Oh. <laughs> Quite an exciting experience. <laughs> I had no idea puppies were so action-packed. Oh, <laughs> <You know? laughs> so cozy. <laughs> Yeah, that's so that's so beautiful. I mean, I I I've also been like in a bit of a domestic stage of bliss, having a two year old and home that we bought right before the pandemic, which has just been such a refuge. And but yeah, I mean, I think that something I've been thinking about a lot lately actually has been this ability to dream of something, and this idea that there's sadly, I feel like such privilege associated with the idea of being able to dream or to imagine or aspire to something. And then then the idea of sort of the safety and the space and the time that you need to have in order to have the space to sort of dream and imagine and daydream. I think there's a lot of things that can prevent that, whether it's, you know, something that's of a much larger magnitude or even a smaller magnitude, like being on your phone all the time and not really properly daydreaming. Um, or not knowing what to daydream of. And so I think this idea of home too, this idea of something that I associate with, with security and with shelter and a degree of comfort and warmth and coziness. So I, I, I think that both of those things together sort of bridge between dreaming of and then this idea of of a place where you could be able to dream of something else, which is home. I don't I, I feel very, very blessed to be able to have the space to have that dreaming space and that home space um, and that dreaming of what it could be to expand and broaden that notion of home for other people in my community, especially. And yeah, so I mean, I guess I, I see it as a, as a place of having space to just be. Um, and I, I there's this quote I often think about it, I actually like have kept it up in my studio for a long time about home. And it's this, I think kind of relates to the sort of tension of, of seeking home is that Audre Lorde quote, uh, which is it, it, it's the end of a poem, but the lines go for the embattled, there's no place that cannot be home nor is. And it just ends with that nor is part and which I find very melancholy, but I, I love that idea of for the embattled, there's really no place that is home, but there's also no place that isn't home. And I think of that oftentimes uh, as kind of like a, a hopeful, but also a bit melancholy message about home. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. What a beautiful note to end this podcast on and to end the series on. That's a, that's really beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that, Christina. And thank you so much, both of you, for being on the podcast and for sharing so much and for making the beautiful work that you make. Thank you for the conversation, both of you, and for putting together such a beautiful exhibition, such a beautiful little home (laughs) for all of our work. Yeah, exactly. A home for all of us. Thanks, Gemma. (laughs) Thank you both so much. This episode is brought to you by the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. 
Dreaming of Home is on view till January the 7th, 2024. Learn more about the show at leslieloman.org. Our gorgeous show music is Fantasy Island Obsession by Tom Rasmussen, featuring Kai Isaiah Jamal, courtesy of Globetown Records. I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley, and this is Dreaming of Home. show music is Fantasy Island Obsession, written and performed by friend of the podcast, Tom Rasmussen, featuring Kai Isaiah Jamal.